Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Privy, what jackanapes wouldst hammer on the door of a modest, God-fearing pilgrim of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at this unholy hour? I know that thou art a good man and true, which is why I come to warn ye of the nefarious satanic plot against our holy colony. Those devil-worshipping tribes amongst us, which I'm very, unfortunately, for the sake of historical accuracy, going to call savages, because that's how people in this time and place talked, though I feel really awful about saying it truly. Anyway, these savages, and I, I'm really hoping you can see the air quotes there, and won't judge me too harshly as a person whose ability to see the humanity and his fellow people, regardless of ethnicity or culture, is deeply limited by his time and place. To get back to the point... They're conspiring to drive all us Englishmen and our families back to the sea. Arm yourselves and stay vigilant. I will. But please try to come up with a less pejorative name for those demonic hordes, would you please? That S-word really makes me uncomfortable. But still, to arms! disturbs this Christian house at this deep hour of the night? My deepest apologies, sir. I come with a warning. Foul witchcraft be afoot. No. The devil is loosed on God's own Massachusetts Bay Colony? Tis true. Young Abigail Williams has accused Goody Proctor of witchcraft, conspiring with Beelzebub himself and bringing the evil demon religion of a servant. And just to be clear, when you say servant, that's just a nice way of saying slave. Uh, yes, I suppose. Uh, yes, vile black magic. Though it's also possible Abigail is just mad because she had an affair with John Proctor, Goody Proctor's husband, and wants the wife out of the way so she can get that fine hunk of Puritan man-meat all to herself. You have a surprising amount of knowledge about this situation. As God is my witness, it may be knowledge, or it may be half-remembered plot points from a high school performance of The Crucible. Either way... We must hang the witches. What violet intrudes upon my family's peaceful slumber at this ridiculous hour? Deepest apologies, but I come bearing terrifying tidings related to our, uh... Peculiar institution. By peculiar institution, of course, you're referring to the black euphemism we use to refer to an exploitative system in which our plantations deliver untold riches for a small planter class by breaking the backs and stealing the labor of human beings we have the nerve to claim we own like livestock. Yes, that's the one. Ah, uh, proceed. Well, 
For some reason, it appears that those we dragged across an ocean, regularly lashed with the whip, and whose children we sell away. Wow. When you hear it out loud, we're just the worst people ever, aren't we? Well, these ungrateful slaves don't seem to like this situation and are conspiring to rebel. Why, I never! We must crush the slave rebellion! Rebelling against the crown and conspiring to steal away the colonies. We must crush the revolution. Loyalists are conspiring with the crown to steal away our freedom. We must crush the Tories. The Masons are conspiring to destroy the newly formed Union. We must crush the Freemasons. That damnable James Buchanan and his Democrat Irish Catholic hordes are conspiring to hand the 1856 election over to the goddamn Pope. We must crush the Catholics. I heard Father Coughlin on the newfangled wireless radio say that the U.S. is becoming enslaved to a conspiracy of Hebrew infiltrators. We must crush the Jews. Mr. President... The Democrats, the Blacks, the Jews, the media, on your entire enemies list are conspiring to kick you out of office and undo the 1972 election. We must crush, I don't know, like three quarters of the voting public. Holy shit, is there any period of our history where we didn't think there was a conspiracy out there that desperately needed crushing? I presume you've realized the answer is a big old no. But in this tumultuous, violence, and disease-wracked election year, we thought it was pretty important to take stock of our current situation through the lens of the conspiracies that have roiled American political life since before there was even an America. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. May I say that Mr. Jesuit talks about this being cruel and reckless. He was just baiting. He has been baiting conspiracy theorists here for years, requesting that they, before making up implausible theories, get all of the facts straight and actually look into disconfirming evidence. Now, I give this record... And I want to say, Mr. Jesuit... I beg your pardon. Let us not entertain this madness any further, Senator. Let's... let's... You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? So, your little post-themed song skit this time casts you in the heroic role of Joseph Welch, scourge of the character assassinating conspiracist and drunk Senator Tailgunner Joe McCarthy? Oh... Yeah, yeah. A little self-aggrandizing? Like, even for you? Let's not focus on that, Dana. Let's focus instead on how exciting our new topic is and welcome in our listeners, new and old. Fine. Deflect away. It's only adding to your eventual therapy bill. 
Welcome, one and all, to the first flower of what we're thinking of as phase two of the Paranoid Strain. In our new incarnation, we're your bi-weekly supplier of short, sweet segments that over time explain in detail all of the crazy ideas that frequently worm their way into our shared experience of reality. We do this so that you can better understand why your greengrocer, your COVID-19 swabber, and especially that old friend from high school who just reached out on social media to see how you're doing, and how is she? Oh, fine, thanks. I mean, things didn't work out with Steve in the end, but you know, no real regrets. There were some good years, and it's been a learning experience. And after all, we did a great job bringing up Kaylee, even after things went south between us. And sure, it's hard adjusting to the dreaded empty nest, but you know, it's opened up so much time for new hobbies, and even a new career. And on that subject, have you ever thought about becoming financially secure by starting your own business selling? high-quality essential oils in your spare time to friends and family? Anyway, we're here to explain why those folks believe such utterly bizarre conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who is gradually, if a tad grumpily, adjusting to sharing a podcast closet with the many pretty dresses of Lady Jesuit. Alongside the interjections of my faithful compatriot, Dana Unicorn, interjections that are, he assures me, both the dulcet and Northern European. The gentlemen of the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and other friends of the show, I'm going to try to help you contextualize our current unquestionably crazy moment within the broader swath of lunacy that has bedeviled our unique body politics for the past 400 plus years. The phase two that we alluded to means that instead of presenting this episode as one or two lengthy sessions separated by a couple of months of production, we plan to put these out as 30 minute or so easily digestible chunks issued as part of a bi-weekly content stream interspersed with interviews, book and film reviews, chunks of older episodes from our archive, and as dictated by current events, periodic that help to explain what's going on when some new and bizarre theory starts infiltrating the mainstream of discourse. But long-time listeners and those with longer attention spans, don't worry. When this is through, we'll put out a full-length version of this episode in all of its multi-hour glory for your extended listening pleasure. With that, to the topic at hand. While conspiracy thinking has bedeviled societies throughout the world in various times and places, it's fair to say that Americans have let conspiracy thinking mold their political ideas and actions since long before we were a country. So we're going to dive deep into the origins and effects that these ideas have had on the currents of American and pre-American political life, starting, of course, with the guys in the funny hats. The Pope? Good guess. But no, the Puritans. As we all vaguely remember from history class, the Puritans were among the first groups of English colonists to move to the New World, settling in the designated region of New England, where it is rumored people with strange and alien accents live to this very day. They are descendants of wicked funny something and uh, known as mass holes. Go Pats! Right. When thinking of these folks, it's important to remember that they were kind of the fringe of the fringe of church reformers in the heady, theologically disputative times of the 17th century. In our research, we uncovered an article in the 16th century journal by Michael P. Winthrop. Never let it be said that we skimp on our research, people. That details a strange incident in 1591 known as the Coplinger-Hackett conspiracy, in which three Presbyterians... We know now that's a really mainstream Protestant Christian denomination. But at the time, it was seen as a dangerous sect that stood in opposition to the official Church of England. 
Yeah, so these presbos got themselves all worked up about how Queen Elizabeth I wasn't converting to the true religion. Which, as it turned out, was coincidentally the exact flavor of Presbyterianism that these three practiced. This failure to convert on Liz's part was, in their view, due to her being unduly influenced by a sinister conspiracy of Catholic sympathizers. Eventually, they decided that one of their group, Hackett if you're keeping score, was decreed by Almighty God to be the new king of Europe and that the reign of Elizabeth was over. Their key tactic was to announce this in public, and the totally unsurprising response of the authorities was to immediately arrest these dudes, torturing and then hanging the new king as an example to any other wannabe sovereigns. So anyway, the Puritans who would eventually found the Massachusetts Bay Colony weren't quite as unhinged as these dudes, but they were definitely seen as troublemakers by the Crown, and had fled to Holland years before in order to avoid official English persecution. However, living in the multicultural society that the for-its-time relaxed attitudes of the Dutch had encouraged in the Puritans' adopted city of Leiden didn't sit that well with the strict theology of the English expatriates. And so, when the opportunity came for them to go off to a supposedly unspoiled, empty wilderness... Empty, that is, if you ignore all of those Native Americans. Yeah, we'll be getting to those folks in just a second. Anyway, they jumped at the chance, arriving in 1628 to build a shining nation on a hill, mostly by claiming land for themselves that was already part of the traditional lands of various Native tribes. In spite of all this, there initially appeared to be a sort of awkward truce between the English and their hosts. Of course, that would unfortunately not last long. Jesse Walker's excellent book, The United States of Paranoia, a book we referenced in the very first episode of the show, does a great job of pointing out exactly how paranoid the people who settled the land we now call the United States were, dating to well before the nation's founding. His narrative begins, in fact, with the state of affairs that existed between the first colonists and the natives, and points out that the indigenous peoples were perhaps the first targets of the colonists' conspiratorial imagination after arriving in their new, quote, promised land. Walker here evocatively spins the perspective of the colonists, incorporating quotes from contemporary writers, to evoke the fear that these folks felt eyeball-deep in a world untouched by modern science, and imagining themselves beset by demonic forces that were a constant worry for the people of God. Here's the story. Satan got here first. He knew he was losing ground to God as the gospel spread through the old world. So he drew a colony out of some of those barbarous nations dwelling upon the northern ocean and promised the pagans a country far better than their own. Those disciples became the Indians, and with those savages as his servants, Satan established an empire in the American wilderness. And there, like a dragon, the Dark Lord waited, keeping a guard upon the spacious and mighty orchards of America. So when the God-fearing colonists arrived, they found a land that was already, to their mind, in the grip of Satan. And not only did they believe the native peoples were tools of Satan, in some cases they believed some among the Indians were literally demons in human disguise, especially when those demons were taking up arms against the colonists. But honestly, it got worse because inevitably, when faced with the restrictive and churchy-as-shit expectations of Puritan authorities, some ostensibly civilized Englishmen moved farther out to the frontier, away from the prying eyes of the clergy and the holier-than-thou neighbors. And just as inevitably, these same dudes got lax about church attendance, stopped spending their time with the English, and worst of all, started trading freely with the natives. As this quite animated and well-informed gent from the Crash Course YouTube channel noted, 
The authorities came down on these reprobates rather harshly. Now, the Puritans had a rather conflicted view of the Indians. On the one hand, they saw natives as heathens in need of salvation, as evidenced by the Massachusetts seal, which features an Indian saying, come over and help us. On the other hand, they recognized that the Native American way of life, with its relative abundance and equality, especially when it came to women, might be tempting to some people who might want to go native. This was such a concern that in 1642, the Massachusetts General Court prescribed a sentence of three years hard labor for anyone who left the colony and went to live with the indigenous people. There was even anti-India propaganda in the form of books, captivity narratives in which Europeans recounted their desire to return to Christian society after living with the Indians were quite popular, even though some, like The Famous Sovereignty and Goodness of God by Mary Rowlandson, did admit that the Indians often treated their European captives quite well. New England's All of this came to a head in 1675 when one of the so-called praying Indians That is a native who've converted to Christianity warned the colonial government that a local tribal leader was supposedly planning an attack. This man, John Sassaman, quickly came to a bad end, as is detailed in this over-the-top YouTube documentary. Josiah Winslow, governor of the Plymouth Colony, took a meeting with John Sassamon, a praying Indian. Sassamon warned him that Metacomet was planning a major offensive against the English. His goal? To drive them back into the sea. Later that month, John Sassamon's body was found beneath the ice of Assawampsit Pond. His neck had been broken. The English arrested three Wampanoag men in connection to the murder. Another praying Indian testified against them, and in June 1675, they were hanged. The Wampanoag tribe didn't particularly care for the idea that the English were carrying out rough justice on their own kinsmen, who they naturally felt should be under tribal jurisprudence. The dispute eventually led to bloody reprisals on both sides, which the British came to refer to as King Philip's War. Again, handing off to our dramatic narrator. King Philip's War, the conflict that bears Metacomet's Christian name, was the bloodiest war per capita in American history. It shaped our national psyche, irrevocably changed the way colonists and Indians saw one another, and opened the door to Anglo-American domination of this continent. How bloody and costly was this conflict to both sides? Well, in this 1998 lecture by the magnificent historian Jill Lepore, we hear a catalog of the damage recorded by a contemporary colonist. Uh, Saltonstall, Nathaniel Saltonstall, the author of, of this account, titles his account, a true but brief account of our losses sustained since this cruel and mischievous war began. Take as follows. In Narragansett, not one house left standing. At Warwick, but one. At Providence, not above three. At Patuxet, none left. Very few at Seekonk, at Swansea, two at most. Marlborough, wholly laid in ashes, except two or three houses. Besides particular farms and plantations, a great number not to be reckoned up, wholly laid waste, or much damnified. And as to persons, it is generally thought that of the English there hath been lost in all, men, women, and children, above 800 since the war began, of whom many have been destroyed with exquisite torments and most inhumane barbarities, either cutting off their heads, ripping open their bellies, or scalping the head of skin and hair, and hanging them up as trophies, wearing men's fingers as bracelets about their necks and stripes of their skin which they dress for belts. Nathaniel Saltonstall's true but brief account of our losses is a standard portrait of New England during King Philip's War. A landscape of ashes, of farms laid waste, of corpses without heads. A place where three-legged cattle wander aimlessly, dragging their guts after them, and Indians strut through the woods wearing belts of human skin and necklaces of rotting fingers. 
It is difficult to imagine a scene that could do more to assault English notions of order. Towns have been raised and blood spills everywhere. Nearly all that was English in Saltonstall's landscape has been destroyed. We can be assured the destruction experienced by the natives was similar. No doubt. So anyway, this was yet another horrible conflict that's part of this nation's bloody history. But the reason we're talking about it now is that though the colonists at the time saw themselves as engaged in a struggle with an organized alliance of tribes under the titular King Philip, i.e. a conspiracy of Indians seeking to drive the English into the sea. As Walker points out, this perspective completely ignores the fact that the allegiance of the native tribes was quite divided. Note that competing tribes fought on the side of colonists against Philip's forces. The English conspiracy view also hugely overstates Philip's authority, which had largely dissipated by the early stages of the war. So the colonists were fighting for their very lives and homes against disparate native groups who were themselves frightened of the encroachments and depredations of these newly arrived foreigners. And while the English imagined they were in mortal combat with a well-organized, singularly driven army of Satan, the truth was that, in fact, they were fighting some, but not all, of the various tribes of Native Americans around them, while other Native groups were in fact allied with the colonists based on internecine hostilities that predated the arrival of the English altogether. And that even among the antagonists, and in spite of the name of the war, King Philip's army was neither a singular army nor King Philip's. In other words, the English saw a vast conspiracy, instead of a series of related, but largely contingent, violent incidents. Still, quoting Walker now, Even imaginary cabals could have real effects. While King Philip's wars raged, the fear of a vast Indian conspiracy, in one colonist's words, a universal combination of the Indians, had dreadful consequences for those natives who thought they had joined the colonist community. Here he's referring to the so-called praying Indians. Again, those who had adopted the religion of the colonists, though they were still treated as second-class citizens or worse. You'll recall that John Sassaman, the native whose murder kicked off the incidents that led to King Philip's war, was one of these praying Indians. Walker goes on to mention that in the midst of this war and with a mindset similar to, for example, the U.S. government's internment of Japanese Americans hundreds of years later, the colonial government, fearing sedition, rounded up the natives they actually controlled— i.e. these praying Indians, and interned them on an island where half of them starved, many others were enslaved, and still others were the target of colonial ire every time some non-praying Indians attacked a settlement. So from the very beginnings of the English colonization of North America, there was a strong strain of conspiracism, which our schismatic and rather paranoid Protestant forebears apparently brought with them from dear old Blighty. And as is always the case when the powerful get conspiracy-minded, the powerless suffered the brunt of it. Which brings us to maybe the most notorious flowering of conspiracism in the pre-U.S. period and the women who suffered for it. Of course, we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. not going to rehash the whole thing, as this is definitely one of those stories that everyone seems to have absorbed reasonably well from their high school history classes. But it's worth taking a moment to focus on the sheer degree to which the whole Michigas was predicated on and entirely driven by conspiracy thinking. 
In its broad outlines, the story involves a group of young women and girls who in 1692 had apparently pressured a local servant. Again, when you hear servant during this period, you should just assume that means enslaved person. Into sharing the religious rituals she had brought with her from Africa, resulting in a series of secret dances and incantations held in the woods in the middle of the night that just seemed tailor-made to terrify the fuck out of Puritan society. For comparative purposes, consider how freaked out middle-class, secular, 1990s white parents were by their kids' affection for gangster rap. Both the House and Senate held hearings in Washington, D.C. on the effects of violent and demeaning imagery in popular music, which sparked a heated debate over the influence of so-called gangster rap music. It coerces, influences, encourages, and motivates our youth to commit violent behavior, to use drugs and abuse women through demeaning sex acts. It ain't gonna do nothing. This might make a few white kids talk crazy. And that's good. <laughs> yeah. That, but, like, a lot more. So the girls, when caught, immediately started blaming anyone except themselves, including not only the poor servant, quote, unquote, whom you can imagine had little choice in the matter when a group of privileged white girls whose family literally owned her demanded that she show them how to cast love spells and the like. Ugh, white people. Am I right? Anyway, the accusations quickly spiraled out from there. Eventually, a court was convened, more than 150 people were accused, and 19 of them suffered judicial murder for imaginary crimes. It's important to remember that the best educated intellectuals of the time were all in favor of this turn of events. Walker quotes Cotton Mather, one of the most important religious and political figures of the period, spinning the Salem nonsense into an even broader plot against the virtuous English colonists. He even suggested that the attacks by the spirits of the invisible world originated among the Indians whose chief sagamores are well known unto some of our captives to have been horrid sorcerers and hellish conjurers, and as such conversed with demons. As you might expect, though, the early hysterical accusations by the teenagers interested in saving their own asses quickly turned into something else. Again, Walker. In their 1974 book, Salem Possessed, the social historians Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum made a strong case that the initial wave of accusations were closely correlated with long-standing local disputes over land, church politics, and the tensions between the agrarian Salem village and the more mercantile Salem town. Meanwhile, many accusations came wrapped in a long history of gossip, as old chatter about who might be a sorceress, a wife-beater, or a whore made it easier for certain citizens to fall under suspicion. So this was an absolutely horrendous episode in proto-American history. But unlike many similar episodes, at least the colonial society seemed to learn something from their mistakes. And as a result, they actually instituted some important reforms to ensure that similar travesties of justice couldn't transpire in the future. The most important of these was the banning of so-called spectral evidence. Dana, could you give us a quick explanation of what exactly we mean by spectral evidence? Well, Jesuit, as near as we can tell, spectral evidence is a practice of accepting, in a court of law, the dreams and visions of people who claim that they have been visited by one of a variety of supernatural entities. And what's the problem with this practice? What, are you kidding? Uh... Kinda. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. I'm setting you up to spike the ball, unicorn. Go in for the kill. Oh, right. Okay. So, there are many obvious problems with spectral evidence. I mean, of course the main is that there is no way to verify or check this evidence against reality. In other words, there is no difference between one person's spectral evidence, a second person's self-serving lie, and a third person's earnest delusion. 
Another is that, in essence, there was no potential penalty for those who would give false spectral evidence, as their perjury could not, by definition, be proved for the reasons thus noted. So if, for example, and this definitely appears to have been the case in a variety of Salem accusations and even executions, somebody had a beef with her neighbor about a property boundary, she could then just suggest that she'd had a dream in which a ghostly phantasm that looked like her neighbor cursed a livestock, and that's why her most valuable milk cow died. And then the court would order that neighbor to be hanged. Wait, that can't be right, can it? I mean, essentially, yeah, it was. The good thing arising from the horrible thing with the Salem witch trials and the deaths of so many innocent people was that, as the hysteria grew, the authorities gradually came to realize that the sheer unfalsifiability of spectral evidence meant there were no limits to the people who could be accused via this method. For example, Mary Phipps, wife of the newly arrived governor, was accused of witchcraft based on spectral evidence, at which point the governor decided maybe everybody should take a spectral evidence timeout. A timeout that continues to this very day. Yeah, however fucked up our judicial system is, especially to black and brown people, it's thankfully tough to get your neighbor executed by testifying that you had a dream where they were having brunch with Beelzebub. That shit won't even fly in Arkansas. Okay, that covers the highlights of our conspiracy tour of the colonial period. Let's move on to cover the conspiracies that attended the South and its peculiar and abhorrent institution.
so I think today is it's quite amazing that you guys are getting married. I'm I'm really super fucking psyched for you guys. That is fantastic. You guys are getting hitched, and I'm just only sad that we can't be there. Uh, fucking Corona. Um, but I expect uh, lots of pictures and lots of Facebook posts and lots of details, and uh, we are there in spirit. And also, I want to know exactly when we are partying next time. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.